Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was <laughs> he... <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a party. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Right, hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. Now, this is a special little episode uh, of The Rock Hunters because this week obviously marks an incredible milestone, an unbelievably important anniversary uh, in the history of music. Um, but we're not talking about Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, he's a scriptwriter. <laughs> uh, but no, it's the 40th anniversary of True, Gary. And what's, unfortunately, for our listeners, that you are the Bill Frindle of this show, and I'm I'm talking to you, But and it's a bit much to ask you for all the facts and figures uh, about your own record, because then you'll just sound a bit weird won't well, you it is and i've no idea how many it's sold but I, there's a couple of little figures that i like but i i don't i remember i remember you going and getting an ascap award for some like 600 million plays <clears> in no, america no, it's not quite that it's uh it's over five million plays on that song true right. which is a lot actually people go oh you know it's uh it, there's a billion play streams on and, and things like that nowadays but that's radio play in america so. but that's also because it's one of the most sampled records ever isn't it i mean you've had so many Yes, I've been asked, I, and I get asked to be given to give more samples as I get older. I find. <laughs> but I, I, I want to say something about the truth. Is I remember coming to see your the first band our reunion, and I came to see you at the O2, and uh, in fact I came with our good friend Steve McLaughlin because he used to be in a new romantic band, so it was perfect. 
And actually, I've got to share this one little gag, which is we got the water bus up the Thames. Yeah. And some of the Spandau fans. And as the boat docked, Steve said, arrived at glory. <laughs> right, as a, anyway, as, a, as in journeys to glory. <laughs> yes, exactly. I would say one for the Spandau fans there. Yes, yeah. But, um, but we were, the guest seats at the O2 are stage left. And as well as affording you a great view of the stage, they also afford you a great view of the audience. And I just remember when you played True, that everyone's got their phones up and everyone looking at everyone and just thinking, oh my God, my mate wrote essentially the my way or the imagine of his generation. Because oh. that's what that song is. Oh. That's what that song is, Gary. I, I don't know why. It's funny the connection with my way as well, because my way was, was the lyrics were written by Paul Anker. And Paul Anker covered True. Uh, That's right. About 10 years ago on, on an album he did. Um, and he substituted uh, Ella for Marvin. Yeah, listening to Ella. Yeah, right, that bit. Um, I don't know what what it is about the tune that, that actually gets people um, so worked up, you know, in a good way. I mean, wedding songs and whatever it might be. That's the. I remember doing... Um, the bodyguard and being uh, filming that and Kevin Costner saying to me, you know, that song, that, that song belongs to me and my wife. And, uh, but, but, you know, what are you saying? No, it doesn't actually. Because <laughs> no, taxi drivers say the same thing to me or my plumber. But uh, anyway, they got divorced. So, so much. <laughs> um, yeah. And listen, to, I think we're talking about the album mostly here, um, which is the, which is um, fourth. Of March, I've only, I've only prepped the song. I've actually prepped the song. It was the song. I was. Uh, I mean, no, it's a fa it's a fabulous album, you know. Um, yeah, well, we can... and it, but and of course, this was very much a zeitgeisty thing of going to the Bahamas, wasn't it? To talk from uh, how it developed, really, from the beginning, and and the Bahamas was a choice, certainly, to go to Nassau because uh, the Nassau Compass Point Studios, and I'm sure you've been there, guy, right? No, I'd, I've been there around that uh, around that to just after. In fact, I remember Robert Palmer telling me about you being there. Yeah, because um, Robert's an island. Robert was on island. Robert lived right. He lived right next to the studio. And Chris yeah. Blackwell from Island Records owned um, uh, owned the Nassau Compass Point Studio, and of course, famous for the the, the Compass Point All Stars, right? The the that's right. But also, I mean, because around that period that you worked there, it was literally everyone. I mean, it kind of started with nightclubbing the Grace Jones record, yeah. uh, and from then, and within the year that you were there, there was Talking Heads, there was ACDC, there was you know everyone was. From every and Dire Straits, everyone from every ACDC. Kind of I can't. Oh, no, think, Dire Straits didn't go there. ACDC. I can't think of a more wrong band to be in in Compass Point Nassau. I mean, they're literally it's it's the most chilled out place you'll ever go to. I don't know. Maybe I've got them wrong, but uh, it doesn't <laughs> seem like that music. Because I certainly felt we all felt inspired by the place, and I think you know we had a certain set of songs uh, that you know to use the phrase that was you know, quite cool in those days, Blue Eyed Soul. Um, it, it seemed like a good place to go and find the energy of that space to infiltrate our music. Because uh, before then, I mean, we found out was such a London band. You know, we'd only ever recorded at London, you know, Trident or Townhouse or, you know, Utopia. And, and everything we did was about London clubs and the London scene. And there was a, such a change in my songwriting after the Diamond album and chart number one, you know, into something much more soulful. And we, I can tell you what I, how that sort of became that, how I felt inspired to do that, that um, it seemed to make sense to get out of London and try and become a global group because up until then we'd only really sold songs in, in UK and Europe.
But it was, I mean, everything was very much going that way, wasn't it? We all, I know as a player, we were, that's where everyone was at. Was, it, it was very much about black music. Because you, you've made a point before, how you said that the thing with how in the inky press, you know, the NME and everything like that, that sort of black music was blues and reggae, well, reggae essentially. And, and, and there was a lot of African music happening at that time. And it was, you, you, you had this thing that soul was sort of looked down on as being aspirational and, you know, so yeah. you were doing that. But what, what, that's why I find it, what is quite interesting though, is so you were looking for a soul reference, right? And so you use Marvin Gaye, who of course at that point had just put out um, Sexual Healing, which we all lost our minds over, yes. didn't we? Yeah, Remember? So he was, but what's, what's quite funny is using him as a reference is that this is the guy who did What's Going On, who invented Conscious Soul. So it's actually still an incredibly credible. It's like you didn't say listening to Barry all night long, did you? No, no, no. Or Junior. <laughs> Marvin was a good choice, but I think it was, listen, there was some circumstances that got me to listen to that music. Um, I'd become quite good friends with the guys from Altered Images and found myself going up to Glasgow and hanging out with them quite a bit and uh, Claire and Jerry and their manager. And uh, they were massive fans of Marvin Gaye and, and, that music and I'd always been you know I'd had what's going on and I had let's get it on uh you know those albums were big for me in the 70s in the mid 70s and um who wouldn't love those records uh but they were playing it a lot in the car and I just recorded Diamond which has got you know it's funk side but it's got this really tricky prog rock side to it as well which is yeah. bizarre and I remember playing Brave Brave I think it's Brave the and I remember playing <laughs> Brave but probably unfulfilled um I remember playing that as a, in the as a cassette of that in their car and thinking I'm on the wrong tip here I just don't want to do this music. I want to go back. And so I lived at home with mum and dad at the time. And I had this echo guitar, which sits behind me. Uh, oh, have you dressed the set? No, have it's dressed the set for us. Guys? It's right there. The echo guitar, echo brand. I'm not sure where they're made. I think it's like Norway. I think they're Japanese, aren't they? Oh, no, no, echo sounds like that. I don't know. And um, We'll get emails. Anyway, I, was, I literally lived at home in a council house with mum and dad. I'd had two records out. I'd been on top of the pops half a dozen times. Um, and we we were still, we couldn't afford to move out. And um, and I just remember writing these songs, a bunch of songs that had uh, a very different feel to them and, you know, gold and lifeline and communication and showing my brother them in the, in the bedroom. And uh, he was getting very excited about it, you know, thinking this is like, you know, this, this, this is fantastic, you know, it's going to be really change the landscape for us, you know, because I don't think people are expecting it. And it seemed to us that the person to get on board to produce this at the time was someone who just landed the ABC record, right? And the dollar record and, and uh, no, it was it dollar. Oh, of course. And it's Trevor Horn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the first bunch of rehearsals we did on what was then called the Pleasure Project, because Pleasure was one of the first singles I came, songs I came up with on that album had Trevor Horn producing and do you know this story I've told it I've heard it. no I don't I don't I, I've heard it from I've heard I've heard a, a version from Trevor and so not, Trevor not came from... down to this to the to Utopia no Utopia to No Miss where we were rehearsing these songs I don't think I had True at the time well certainly Trevor doesn't remember me having True uh but it was going to be the true album in the end and we and he routined the song Pleasure in fact it was his idea to a seven eight bar at the end of the song Right. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to Air Studios to record it. And and I, um, we we did a first day recording there with the drums, with John Keeble. And Dagger gets a call that night from 
Jill, Trevor's wife and manager, saying, Trevor's really worried about this. He, 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 he doesn't think John is going to suit this record. And he'd like, he only wants to continue if you get rid of John and either put a drum machine on the record or we get a new drummer in. And I think it was, it was very Trevor that, you know, but it wasn't very. Yeah, which is, which is funny because he, he, he is like that and he's not like that because he's, he, I mean, he, he kind of cares about the integrity of a band. So I think, I think now he wouldn't have said that. He would have looked at making it work. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? So Dagus phoned me and I, and we said, look, there's no way we're going to get rid of John. John's easily good enough. He's a great drummer, but he's just. Yeah, I he think, is. I mean, this, yeah. I think Trevor just wanted to sort of have, lay his mark on this. It his imprint, yeah. Confidence in it. And so we were sort of floundering after that. And that's when we got the idea to have a chat with Swain and Jolly, who had been doing this song, this these tracks for Imagination, which were kind of electro soul, right? Yeah, with that fabulous bass synth, which you obviously yeah. got from them. Yeah, which is what... And Alison Moye, they did those fantastic Alison Moye records. Was that after you? Or before? I, I think, it, I don't know. I think it was. it could have been at the, just before us. They did Bananarama. Do you remember they That's did, right. Yeah, yeah, Rama yeah. songs? So we thought they were quite good f commercial producers because we'd sort of fallen out with Richard Burgess a bit, really. Because as I, you know, he neither of us felt that the Diamond Arm was was perfect. And well, it's also part of the broadening horizon thing, isn't it? Yeah, the, the it was. And and I love that bass synth on Imagination. I, and I had then I had this song True, and I know that Tony and Steve, uh, Steve Jolly and Tony Swain came down to watch us rehearse that and. And I thought it would be good when we were in the studio. Eventually, we we love that synth sound. And is there, you know, maybe the synth bass could be on the record. Martin didn't seem to mind, so we we get we gave anyway. The first thing we recorded was Lifeline. We picked that out as being the first potential single, and we went into Red Bus. Did you ever go to Red Bus? I went to Red Bus. Yeah, I worked there quite a lot. Listen Grove. Yeah. Listen Grove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's By so... the Antique Market, Church Street Antiques Market. That's right. Who did you who did you uh, record there? I... Mate, I can't remember the eighties, you know. <laughs> Straight from a club. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get thirty, thirty. Ready to get thirty, ready to get twenty, twenty, twenty. Ready to get twenty, twenty. Ready to get fifteen, 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 fifteen. Just fifteen bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. 
To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Uh, um, yeah. But what I want to ask, but the thing with, with True, was it just uh, a succession of oh my gods, right? You come up with this thing, you go, oh my God. You play it to Martin, right? He was the first person you played it to. Yeah. And uh, the song and was and the album, right? Oh, the song. No, so, so, well, I, I want to get to the song, Gary, because this is, you know, I know obviously the album is special to you. Sure, sure. Uh, it's, um, but, but was it like you play it to Martin? He goes, "Oh my God!" Then who would have been the next pe- person you played to? The band or Steve Dagger? And then it's just, "Oh my God!" And then like, then Swain and Jolly here, they go, "Oh my God!" Was it just a oh, succession of Tony all says? The way down? Tony says he never thought it was a single, right? Um, so there was no "Oh my God" from Tony. Um, I definitely felt oh my god and i remember writing it and there and obviously there were some you know we'll get claire on i'm sure we'll get claire on she said she wants to come on claire Grant. yeah because what's interesting because there's also there's the lyrical thing isn't there there's there's lines that you've picked out of lolita because that was the book that she gave you yeah right uh which that's and you know seaside arms and it's seaside limbs in the book yes exactly and and that's that's where pill on my tongue comes up because i was thinking because you've talked about the pill being nerves that dissolve um because it's quite funny i I was thinking if that song had been written like three years later pill on my tongue would have only have meant one thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh with a thrill in my head and a pill on my tongue yeah i think those lines are just are based a bit on nabokov uh beautifully pretentious but a little message really for for her i suppose at the time this was we were having a sort of platonic relationship uh it just felt right for it to be platonic and that's what it was and um and i wrote those lines you know why do i find it hard to write the next line when i want the truth to be said was really a songwriter saying i just want to say you've inspired me to do this but i can't really be too truthful well, it's actually, it's actually because, of course, in the 80s, we're all big on postmodernism. And it's actually a fantastically postmodern thing to do is to write a love song about how you can't write a love song. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you can write love or, or, or it's yeah. the act of writing the song. Is, it becomes the song. Yeah. So there was lots of that. The, the Oh My God moments. I think, yes, Tony Swain and Steve Jolly recognised it as being a really good tune. But the real Oh My God actually came when we were in Nassau itself. And there is video footage of this that my brother took. I think it's Martin, um, <clears throat> where we'd, we'd, we'd recorded the, the sort of uh, the drums and the bass and we'd, we'd put some keys down. And then I did the guitar and then they like chink, chink, which was obviously meant to be, but. I've, I, I, that, that, that's the one kind of muso point I want to, I want to bring up is that guitar, yeah. which is how the hell did you manage to do that without going 
There's literally nothing between the chords. No. That that I mean, either someone actually edited them all out, or that was that's a that's literally like some Nietzschean exercise in in the will. I was feeling it, man. I was a soul boy. I was in the groove, and I don't know, but it was something I got from a Motown record and numerous Motown records. Probably it was it was a trick that they they'd done, putting that on the snare and the and later. You know. Um, uh, Whatever it is, wherever the groove. Check, check for yeah, one, two. It's actually on two and four. It's on the snare beat. Yeah, so it was a, it was a definitely um, a Motown thing, but but when I, then I did the backing vocals and we tracked up the backing vocals and we had this little effect we did in those days. You used to have to, you we were recording with Dolby, famous made famous Dobly Dobly Final Tap, <laughs> and which took all the noise out. And what happened is it it, it muffles it and then it goes back. Yeah, takes the top off. Yeah. Goes back through another sort of thing that puts all the top back on but without the hiss so what if you do though if you don't if you if you leave it off but record with it you get this lovely airy sound this kind of really top high-end sound and we did that as an effect on the on the backing vocals and and one and anyway there's a bit of footage where we're all sitting in the control room in nassau and uh and Everybody, all the road crews come in and everybody's just singing along to this. And you can see we're just so joyful. We're so happy. It's like, this is special. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's also, oh, by the way, because that backing vocal thing, I mean, that is, let's face it, that's a nod to 10cc, isn't it? Well, it the way it was same. recorded was a nod to 10cc. Probably not, probably not consciously at the time, but it's you're basically employing the same technique they used. But um, I remember when I wrote it, where the, where the what inspired me, I remember the exact thing that inspired me. Obviously, there's some elements of Al Green in that, in that whole chord sequence, mm -hmm. bits of that. But what inspired me was I was at home and for some reason, Let It Be was on TV. Now, there was a moment when Paul McCartney let that movie out, right? So this is 1982 and Let It Be was on television and I was watching it and Dig a Pony, John Sings Dig a Pony, Dig a Pony. And I love that way he took I, one simple word, and he snaked it around melodically. Yeah. And that's where I end up with, ah, 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 which is obviously the word I. I know this much is true. And um, and it was totally from John. So that's a direct baton passing from the Beatles. Brilliant. But it, it is so ubiquitous. I'll say I, definitely in America, I have heard that song just in daily life more than any other song I've ever heard. I've never, I mean, either from one of the samples or everything, even the Paul Anka version, anything. I've never spent a day, I don't think, in America without going into a shop or going in somewhere and not hearing it. Yeah, I don't know why. It got, what happened is it got played on Black Radio 2, which is uh, not Radio 2. There isn't a Black Radio <laughs> <laughs> Could one imagine, right? You know, it got played on Black Radio also in America. And to make that crossover was, uh, you know, that was a big thing. People... We, we did Soul Train with the record. And there had only been a few other artists. That, right there must have been echoes of Bowie for you there. Oh, my God. You know, yeah, Bowie, yeah. Bowie was very close to me on this record because not only did, did, you know, Bowie was one of the few white people. And Elton John and I I think Daryl Hall pl all played Soul Train. They were like the three only white bands that had ever played Soul right. Train. And then because we then did it. And uh, I remember it was funny because I'd forgotten the guy the, it's, it's not who used to present Soul Train. He's he's dead now, black guy. And uh, he interviewed us at the end of the song. He went, 
you guys all look alike. He said, are you brothers? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. He could tell the but, um, fantastic. But I know. But uh, it was a fantastic. And of course, you had that fantastically cinematic video, you know, beautiful posh split screen. Yeah, that was Russell Mulcahy, of course, who invented yeah, Russell Mulcahy, invented a Chris Sullivan suits. Was that Chris Sullivan? Yes, they were Chris. We got sort of a bit berated for the suits, but uh, I think people... They're a bit Ted. They're quite Teddy boy, weren't they? Yeah, but they were meant to be like gambling cowboys. This is what... Chris Sullivan was an ace face in Soho and was a kind of part-time uh, designer, part-time artist himself, you know. Well, he, well, he's the man who brought the zoot suit to the yeah, club scene. And he yeah. created uh, Blue Ronda a la Turk. Yeah. Um, and he came up with those designs and that's what they were meant to be. And it was a little tailor in Kentish town who who knocked them up. And they, they all had our names inside and they were fantastic. Um, have, you still, have you still got it? No. Have you still got I don't it? know why, but I don't have it. And I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a... It's quite tragic. Anyway, carrying on with Bowie is why the yes, reason. Sorry. Obviously, Bowie being so dear to my heart, we knocked Bowie off of number one with that song in the UK. So Bowie was at number one with Let's Dance. And yes. Was that bittersweet? Were you kind of thinking, oh, couldn't it be someone else? <laughs> yeah. Or was it, was it just like, come on? Oh, I felt good about that. You know? Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> you know, Do you know what the other thing, when it went to number one on that day, I remember where I was, we were in Sheffield. We'd done a gig the night before. In, in Sheffield City Hall. And um, and then we uh, we got called in the morning. So it would have been a Tuesday. No, it would have been a Tuesday, maybe. Yeah, because we got the charts in advance, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, the, and we all, I remember just all running. I was sharing a room with John Keeble and going down to Hadley's room and banging on his room. He shared a room with a roadie for some reason. Uh, uh, <laughs> banging on his door and bursting in. And Tony, who's massive, right? Six foot four, <laughs> jumping on the bed. And I just started to really worry that he would injure himself on the ceiling. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had a gig that night in Nottingham. And so we played, we went to Nottingham and of course it was a really celebratory gig. So our record had just gone to number one and, um, and, and Steve Strange came up uh, with a few old Blitz kids to spend the night with us in celebration. Uh, and next door, you know, this place in Nottingham, we've played there, you and I, it's got a, it's got another theater on the other oh, side. Oh yes, yes. Next to the, yes, yes. You know, so there's two theaters uh, uh, playing next door. Was a with a comedian. What's his name? Nick, 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 Nick. Uh, Jim Davidson. Jim Davidson, right? <laughs> so none more old school, right? Yeah. Uh, and none more Tory. So the party afterwards not only had Jim Davidson at it, but it had um, Les Dawson arrived <laughs> at the party. Both of them trolled. Completely <laughs> I mean, more trolled than any rock star that would ever have turned yeah. up. <laughs> more available for fun, put it that way, than right. anyone have ever seen at a, 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 a rock party. Um, oh, super! It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was better night. Well, it's not because I was your label mate at the time, at Christie. I was in Ice House, who were also signed to Christus. And I, I remember just, you know, you'd go into the office and people were losing their minds. So over the, it was fabulous. Over the record, yeah. Uh, the record. You know, obviously, it it, um, it did change. It changed everyone's lives, of course, because then you know, all part of that whole British invasion. You know, Duran coming with their album, and Rio was their sort of equivalent. And I remember the actually, funnily enough, I remember when uh, we had a party because uh, after we did the thousands top of the pops, and we were number one, 
and it was there was a great sense of irony about it because Richard Branson had paid for the party, and it was um, it was a big party in some um, a roof garden that he used. Kensington roof gardens. Yes. And he had paid for it because he had been convinced that fascination and human league was going to go to number one that week and was going to be the number one on the thousandth stop of the pops. And it didn't. We stayed at number one. So I remember going to the party and he was there and through gritted teeth, he was sort of <laughs> paying the bar bill. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously, so Gary, it's been in every TV show ever, right? Modern Family, The Wedding Singer, The Simpsons. Well, it's been Simpsons three times now. I don't know. I don't know why three times, but it has. It's and I know Mag. I think Maggie played a sax on it as well at one point. And uh... oh, that's right, <laughs> she did. But... And actually, can I say, by the way, a big shout out for Steve Norman, who had literally just learnt the sax. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, this is this is what we have to say about this. You're talking to the writer, obviously, and I'm all full of writing stories. But Tony approaching a song like this, you know, he'd never sang like this. You know, this is the, if those first two albums were very sort of Bowie heroes period, and 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 you know dark and now he was trying to approach soul and i think you know the songs were were also pushing him in a slightly different direction and of course where do we look for inspiration we look to bowie and young americans don't we you know that's although i would say for for this one the fact that um tony was a massive sinatra man he was. And I th I think that comes into play here. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And and of course, Steve had only just started playing sax. You're right. And, uh, you know, he, he only picked the sax up because... When... And I must say, and the, the song does feature a magnificent key change, which is done specifically for the ease of sax playing. Because it's written in G, right? It's, it's written in the natural key you'd write it for the guitar. Yeah. And then it goes to E flat, which is the last key anyone except for Brian Ferry ever writes in. I've no um, I, did, I did that. I did, I did <laughs> well, that. It's E flat. It's the perfect sax key didn't know that but i did it oh, as wow. a kind of key change and i went here we go here's the key change there'll be a solo over this it felt right to me i didn't realize that that happens to be a great sax key but that's not a pop key change gary that's a musical theater key change yeah maybe that was showing you a west end wendy but steve certainly pulled out a, a gem of a sax solo that uh we we all love to this day and um uh, the, the the modern fam getting on modern family was always was a big buzz and that was a funny one because obviously we we, we know that uh the scene goes that that she the the, the wife um uh, the true is very important for them and on their 10th wedding anniversary she gets one of the band members of true of, of spandau ballet to come along and sing the, the true to them in their living room and of course when he turns up it's not it's it's ed norton it's ed edward norton um, yeah and he's playing someone called someone a, a name that i'd never heard before and she goes you're not the bass player from spandau ballet and he says no i'm the one between richard miller and martin kemp which was incredible because richard miller was our bass player at school That's right. <laughs> ballet. i mean i know you love those those writing room nerds in america you know? yeah absolutely absolutely uh, anyway thanks for putting up with me i'm not i'm sure i'm not the best guest you've ever had but uh, this is an in-betweeny you're not the worst. <laughs> That's nice to know. Will you play my Christmas single? <laughs> On constantly. <laughs> Thank, thanks, guys. We're on with someone very special uh, this weekend. Oh man, we've got a we've got a great one coming this Sunday. Yes. Thanks uh, for putting. Not that this wasn't. <laughs> so, fortieth uh, celebrations of the True Album today. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Who would have thought? Many, many years. I thought I'd be dead. Not talking to you on a sh on a podcast. Who would have even known what a podcast was? Exactly. Or who I was. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> Unfortunately, I still know you. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on Sunday. It's good, good night. night from me. Good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.